0: We're going to begin in part two of our series today called Questions for Jesus. Now, I'm excited. i got to tell you. Jesus asked 307 questions in the Gospels. He was asked 183 questions. He only answered five of them. You say, well, no, I, I saw him respond. You saw him respond, but you know what he responded with? Not an answer, but another question. <laughs> Because Jesus himself is the answer and the question. He's both. When we're in this series, again, for four weeks, asking questions of Jesus, I began to just think in my heart and pray, Lord, what would you have me share with your people in these two times that I share this month? And I came across a question that is fairly common, that is fairly well-known, I should say, in the Gospels. And that's the title of my message today. And it's a question that a young man asked of Jesus. He asked the question, Jesus, what do I still lack? Jesus, what do I still lack? Matthew chapter 19, begin with me, in verse 16. Then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, did you see that? He didn't answer, he gave a, another question. Right? He responds, and Jesus replied, There is only one who is good if you want to enter life keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired, and Jesus replied, you shall not murder or commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness, or what we call false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich young ruler says to Jesus, well, all these I've kept, the young man said, and what do I still lack? He asked him, what do I lack, Jesus? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, everybody say perfect. He said, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. Come follow me. I want you to focus there again on verse 19. Jesus, what do I still lack? And he said, if you want to be perfect. Now, church, the word perfect there means complete in all its parts. The word perfect there means finished. It means having no part left wanting. Thus, if you were wearing a watch today, you know, world of iPhones and droids, we don't often wear watches as much, but if you were wearing a watch and it had all of its proper wheels and had all of its proper hands in order, then it would be perfect. Job, for instance, in chapter 1 was said to be perfect, but he was not perfect that he was sinless. How do you know he was not sinless? Because in Job 38, God himself has to reprove him. Well, if you're sinless, you don't have to be reproved. So how can you be perfect and yet not be sinless? Because that's not what perfection means. Job was perfect yet needed to be reproved by God because his piety, that's why he was perfect, his piety was properly proportioned. In other words, he had a completeness of parts. His Christianity, his religion was not confined to one thing. His religion seeped in all things. He was not compartmentalized. He was a person who was fully integrated. Jesus said, one thing you lack, young man. There's one single thing you lack. There is one thing missing. You got something missing in you right now. You are not complete, young man, in your obedience. Your obedience lacks an essential part. Your obedience is still found wanting. And he says, so therefore, you're not perfect. You're not mature. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 if you have a Bible. Colossians chapter 1 as we listen to the apostle Paul's prayer, desire, vision, exhortation, and ambition for the Colossian believers to be perfect. If we were to ask the Lord today, Jesus, what do I lack? I think he would respond with such words. Paul said verse 24, now I rejoice and that I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, which is his church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. It's now given. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles his glorious riches of the mystery, and which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim. We admonish him. We teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully perfect, fully mature in Christ. To this end, folks, listen to how high these words are. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. How's your connect group going right now, connect group leader? Well, I am strenuously contending good. That's your call. Well, hey, how's it going with being a witness in your workplace right now? Well, I am exhausted, and I am strenuously contending great. That's your purpose. I strenuously contend with all the energy. Not that I build. Not that I muster up, but that Christ so powerfully works in me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these moments. I pray Holy Spirit, speak so clearly. There is no way, Lord, we can teach this passage today and your Holy Spirit not speak so clearly to hearts. And so I pray you do today and that God give space for your people to respond and that you would do a work, a fresh work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? I want to start with a question. Are you mature? How mature are you? What are you still lacking? How mature are you? Have you ever had those moments in your life where you just said something inappropriate and you said it before you could uh, catch yourself? And you just stuck your toe in your mouth, right? You just said something inappropriate, it just blurted out, and you wished so badly you could take it back. If you're in this room today and you think you are mature, I'm going to ask you this, mature compared to what? Mature compared to who? Mature compared to what standard? I want to say to us, church, I think probably the greatest tragedy in American culture as a whole is the tragedy of immaturity. I don't know that there's a greater tragedy. It is one of the greatest maladies of the world we live in. The New York Times just about 18 months ago put out an article called The Death of Adulthood in American Culture. They'll show you a A picture. The death of adulthood in American culture. And the basic idea is that many of the markers that historically Americans have used for the last 250 years to transition adolescence into adulthood, they're now being pushed back later and later in life or they're being removed altogether. As a result, we aren't quite sure in America if we are grown up or not. Psychologists now at the greatest universities are shifting their recognized age of adolescence and it's no longer 10 to 18. Adolescence is now 10 years old until 25 years old. We have 24-year-old adolescents who still don't have it together. We're 23-year-old adolescents who are, who are still considered adolescents. So, This phrase has started in American culture called extended adolescence. I would like to present to us today that extended adolescence has plagued our nation. It has plagued our culture. It has plagued where we live. Let me give you some stats. In young adult literature, there is a crisis right now among the audience of people who read young adult literature because now 33% of all people who read young adult literature are in their mid-40s. Young adult literature is being read by people in their mid-40s. The typical gamer, gamer, sitting in front of an Xbox, sitting in front of a PS5, the typical gamer right now is not a 15-year-old kid with a PS5. The typical gamer in American culture right now is 35 years old. 35 years old. 35 years old. The typical person right now, an American, I don't even know how you would sit down in front of the TV, much less a game system, okay, at 35 years old. Being a parent, married, doing God's, I have no idea, right? I know, I know we can somehow create little margin places, but the average American right now will have spent 10,000 hours on some gaming system by the time they're 21 years of age. Now, if you understand something, church, if you understand what we now call in sociology deliberate theory, you realize that with conscious practice of anything for 10,000 hours will make you a world-class expert in anything you put your hands to in life. We are now graduating world-class experts at games. Pretty much every young man by the age of 21 years of age. We have a major crisis on our hands. A major, major challenge on our hands. There's a book just recently uh, released called Consumed. I want to show you a picture of it. Fabulous book. It says the culture around us and the marketing techniques are given to fit or to facilitate immaturity and adolescence. It's how markets corrupt children, infantize adults, and then swallow citizens whole. It is this book called Consume. It's probably the most rep- important book that you ever, I've, I have seen written on this in the last few years. And if you follow me on any social media, you realize I promote this book often. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haight. It is extremely controversial. It's one that I read about two years ago, but I can recommend it for you if you can get away from the video games, that is, to, to read The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. What I would like to do for just a few moments is basically share with you what he says. In this book, he says all university students are not going into the university now in America like the boomer generation or Generation X. He said the millennials and the Gen Zers are all going into the university settings not to be equipped but to be kept safe from any ideology that causes them to be challenged. And if you challenge them, they'll create groups that will cuss out all groups of faculty and, and riot and revolt against anyone that, keep, does, that, that, that disturbs their safety net, if you will. And so he talks about the three untruths of American culture. Can I give you those three untruths? Untruth meaning deception, meaning lie. He talks about, number one, the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. He says our generation believes that. Doesn't make you stronger, it makes you weaker. So stay away from the things that are hard. He says the untruth of emotional reasoning Reasoning means always trust your feelings. Your feelings are right. Your feelings should lead the day. Then he talks about the untruth of us versus them. Is that young people believe that life is a battle between good and evil people. And let me go ahead and tell you, we are always the good people. We're not the evil ones. We're the good people. If you are trained in this, Jonathan Haidt says it will extend your underdeveloped stage. It will extend your adolescence. So what he does in the book is he gives eight quick diagnoses of adolescent culture. I want to read them real quick and see if you recognize any of these in American culture. Okay. Let's see if you recognize any of them. Number one, he says you'll have emotional reasoning where you'll let your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. You'll hear things like this, I feel depressed, therefore my marriage is not working out, right? I feel wrong, so therefore, obviously, the relationship is not correct. Catastrophizing, what a million-dollar word, catastrophizing. He said they're perceiving a global pattern of negatives based on a single accident. So this generally happens to me. You know, I seem to fail a lot at, at a lot of different things in life. And so it's applying to the whole something from the minute, something from one specific accident. The overgeneralizing. Overgeneralizing is perceiving a global pattern of of, negatives based on this single... uh, Let me go back real quick. Did I read the wrong one? Go back just one. Catastrophe, yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. Focusing on the worst possible outcome and seeing it as most likely. So it would be terrible if I failed. Then what I talked about with overgeneralizing. Number four is dichotomous thinking. Oftentimes we call this binary thinking, where you view events in all or nothing terms. Oh, I get rejected by everyone. No, really, you only got one bad, one bad DM, right? One bad, one bad comment. Or it was a complete waste of time. No, it wasn't. You grew from it. No, people actually were blessed in it. It wasn't a complete waste of time. Number five is labeling. Labeling, right? Where I assign global negative traits to myself or others. And it's often in the service of dichotomous thinking where I'm undesirable or he's just a totally rotten person. Next one is mind reading. We do this in church all the time, even as leaders in church. Assuming you know what people are going to say before you ask them to serve on your team. Right? You're already making the answer for them. You're already putting words in their mouth. Assuming that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts. Well, he thinks I'm a loser. She thinks this about me. Then negative filtering, number seven, where what? We focus almost exclusively on the negatives and we seldom notice the positives. Well, look at all the people who don't like me, right? A negative, kind of pessimistic, cynical attitude. Then the last one is discounting positives. Claiming that the positive things you do or other things or other people do, they're trivial, so that you can maintain your negative judgment. You know, this is what wives are supposed to do, so it did not count when she's nice to me because that's, that's what they're supposed to do. Or those successes were easy, they weren't really hard, so they don't really matter listen if you have conversations with the emerging generation you will see so many of these impact the way they perceive reality so this is put together in what now americans call a phrase failure to launch wow. failure to launch people get stuck and they just can't launch now i am a 35 year old millennial but i am not up here today saying this with any judgmentalism all I'm trying to do is build us a case so we understand where we are. I know this can be confusing. If you're in this room, I, 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 it's hard to move into adult maturity. Failure to launch can be very sincere people who just get stuck in a stage and America presents all kinds of external pathways to get out of it, but not internal pathways to change your character. That's the challenge. It presents all kinds of outward Moments, outward desires, but not inward. I can tell you, church, what's worse than immaturity in the culture. Can I tell you? It's immaturity inside the church. Not the culture, but in the church. Did you realize most of the damage you read about in the New Testament pages is due to immaturity? You realize most of the hurt you've experienced in church or you've heard people talk about in church is based upon the immaturity of the lives inside the church? So my question today is, how do you recognize spiritual immaturity? Jesus, what do I still lack? Well, here are a few things that Scripture indicates are signs of spiritual immaturity. I'm going to give you a few of them. You're easily swayed by false doctrines. False doctrines. Ephesians chapter 4 says, do not be swayed back and forth by this empty kind of thinking, these genealogies, this, this don't be swayed by the, truth, uh, by the, by the deception. Okay, And what happens is when people don't have the pattern of sound teaching in their life, have you ever read, have you ever seen somebody read one book and their whole faith is swayed? I'm like, whoa, I thought you were farther along than that. What happens is, and this happened all the time in the university setting, you would have students that would go into pastoral ministry majors, but they did not have any pattern of sound teaching. So anytime they read any kind of theological jargon that presented opposite sides, their whole faith was undone. And professors had assumed young people are already having a pattern of sound teaching laid. It's not the case. So you're easily swayed by all kinds of false doctrines. Number two, you can't handle meat. You can't handle deep teaching. Hebrews chapter five tells us you need milk, not solid food. Listen, when you are little, having a bottle is fabulous, right? Now, I don't remember it, but I see the pictures and I was smiling. Now, I was tearing up that formula, okay? I was eating it alive, right? I remember seeing the pictures. But being on the bottle when you're 47, hey, I'm really hungry, where do you want to go for dinner? Don't worry, man. We don't have to leave. I brought a bottle. You want one too? Okay. That's a little different dynamic at 47. Not quite the same dynamic. Here's the third scriptural example of spiritual immaturity. We are judging people by natural lens. So we don't look at people through the lens of Jesus. We don't see people the way Jesus sees people. We look at people through our natural lens. What does Paul tell Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5? Therefore, we judge one from an earthly perspective. That's immaturity. Judging people from an earthly perspective. Fourth sign of spiritual immaturity, we just give in to the flesh. We just constantly give in to sinful desires. We just cannot gain victory in an area of our flesh. We consistently fall in this area. That's a sign of spiritual immaturity. Number five, we lack discernment on complex matters. We have really, really challenging times and we like discernment to understand what's left and what's right, to have a thoughtful, nuanced response to what's happening around us. Or lastly, we just become slaves to the opinions of others. Now look at me, church. Those behaviors greatly sabotage the potential of a church. They greatly sabotage the potential of any congregation. And if you're in a connect group right now, where people in that connect group are demonstrating those behaviors, you know how much it affects the dynamics of that group. You know how that group is challenged when people consistently demonstrate those kind of behaviors. Now, the reason, church, we long for maturity, the reason we really long for change, and the reason immaturity is so frustrating is because we are all destined by God to grow into maturity. We're all destined by God to be spiritually mature. That's God's heart for you. That's God's heart for me. He wants to take you from where you are and bring you into spiritual fullness. So there's this great prayer and great exhortation from uh, Hebrews chapter 5 that you read about many times in foundation phase. But Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone again to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God, the elementary teachings of Christ. You need milk not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He is a child, he's a babe, he's an infant, but solid food is for the mature. Watch this, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by intermittent, no, constant practice of distinguishing good from evil. So the apostle Paul knows something and he's telling the Colossians you're under threat and you're under attack. And so he starts Colossians chapter one saying Jesus is worthy of being the center. This is the supremacy of Christ. He's worthy of being the center of our church and our life. And then he says, in light of that, here is my vision that you grow into spiritual maturity. Listen to me, church. You have not been rescued from your sin to squander your destiny in adolescent faith. You've not been rescued from slavery to squander God's future in childlike bottle times. God has brought you out to bring you in. He has delivered you from to place you in his purpose and his destiny. God wants to take you into biblical maturity. This is Paul's vision, and this is our mission as a church. What is our mission as a church? To gather people to Jesus Christ and lead them to Biblical maturity for the multiplication of believers, leaders, and churches. In verse 28, Colossians chapter 1, Paul said, He, everybody say, He, He. is the one we proclaim so that we may present everyone. Everybody say, "Everyone." everyone. Everyone fully mature in Christ. This is a pastoral heart, to present the people of God mature. Can you imagine Paul writing a letter to our church right here at DP and he dropped it off through an angel? And he wrote a letter right here, right now to our church. And he's looking at you and saying, I have one goal as a leader. I have one goal as a pastor. I have one goal as a spiritual pillar. I have one goal as the equipper of this congregation. I'm going to use whatever resources I have to see you grow up into the full stature of Jesus Christ. Why do we hound you to get into growth phases? Why do we call you and then we text you and then we call you and then we text you and we call you and we text you? Because we're going to use whatever resources we have to present you fully mature in Jesus Christ. It's one goal we have. It's one desire we have. It's the commission God has given us to present every believer fully mature in Jesus. Now, sometimes we confuse the word maturity with perfection. We see them differently. Oh, I can never be perfect like Jesus, Pastor Craig. I can never be mature. No, no, no. That's not the Hebrew interpretation of maturity. The Hebrew interpretation of maturity is the idea, watch this, of living for a designated purpose. Meaning if you're living for your designated purpose, you're growing in maturity. If you're living for the intention for which you were created, you're living with maturity. Listen, church, the most important thing about you is not the things you achieve, but the person you become. The most important thing about you as a Westerner is not the things you do, not the things you achieve, but the person you become. It is possible to achieve a lot of things but be a spiritual failure. You can achieve a whole myriad of of external realities and goals and accomplishments and still be a spiritual failure. So this maturity in, in Colossians 1 and what Jesus is saying in Matthew is not just theological maturity meaning knowledge about God. It's not just ethical maturity, meaning good behavior. It is Christ-like maturity. So our maturity, church, is not measured by religious practice, but by how transformed we are into the person of Jesus. Not how many religious activities we do, but how much do we look like Jesus. Spiritual maturity is how much you and I are thinking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, acting like Jesus, and responding like Jesus. Spiritual maturity is how much you and I are thinking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, acting like Jesus, and responding like Jesus. Imagine how different your life would be. Imagine how different our city would be if it was filled with people who are increasingly loving like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, and responding like Jesus. Imagine what would happen to America if it was increasingly filled with people who are thinking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, acting like Jesus, and responding like Jesus in their circumstances. Today, we live in the Western world where there's such a leadership vacuum. The world is aching for true spiritual leaders. The world is aching for true spiritually mature people. Think about Jesus, spiritually mature. He had undivided love for his father. He practiced spiritual disciplines, not as a form of self-righteousness, but as a life-giving way of connecting with his father. Jesus sacrificed himself for the sake of others. He didn't go to church for himself. He didn't gather in the temple or the synagogue for himself. Jesus had self-restraint even while people were lying about him and gave himself on the cross. We are called in our circumstances to do the same. We are called in our circumstances to be the same, to speak the same, to respond the same, and to think the same. Dallas Willard, the great Dallas, late Dallas Willard, who's obviously in glory, he said, one of my favorite definitions of discipleship everywhere, he said spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. I'm going to read that again. Spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple who, and I want you to focus on this one adverb. This is the part that I want you to forget about. Effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. Now, look, look at me real quick. I probably, church, on the outside, have some vestiges of spiritual maturity. Namely, I'm preaching and leading this church. I better have some vestiges. But can I be honest with you? Sometimes for me to do what Jesus did is a gritting of my teeth. It is not effortless. To the degree that it stops being gritty and becomes more of a joy is the degree to which I'm not yet mature. Spiritual maturity is when I effortlessly do what Jesus would do in my place. When I so easily, effortlessly respond the way Jesus would respond in my place. Now, when I became a Christian 16 years of age, I became a Christian in a Pentecostal church, in a Pentecostal expression. I don't think we ever had a service under three hours. Okay, sometimes three and four hours, all right? And it was awesome, all right? We had more modesty cloths than there are blankets at my house for people in the altars, we had people laid out, we had people running pews, we had people ex- responding to the power and presence of God. But you know what that did for me as a 16-year-old? It produced tremendous zeal in me. I was leading Bible study at my church, i mean, at my school at like 6:45 in the morning. You know, I mean, I had my own elements of communion like leading communion every day, right? At 16 years of age, I I knew what it was like to read through the Bible in 6 weeks or 8 weeks. I knew that. As a te- I, I was in a culture that, that built deep, deep zeal in me, tremendous commitment and activity. But you know what I needed? I needed character transformation. So I remember going to my spiritual mentor, one of them, her name was Dorothy Dunn, and I asked her to give me feedback on how I was doing. And she gave me one of the most uninspiring responses I thought I'd ever get. She never evaluated my spiritual activity. And she never would out my spiritual determination. I remember going to her. I said, Dorothy, how am I doing? And she said, this is about two years after I met Jesus. She said, you're doing well. And I said, why? And she said, Craig, because I'm noticing you're becoming more gentle. And I'm like, gentle? I'm leading prayer meetings with fire. There's fire coming from heaven on my classmates. What do you mean gentle? Because that's what spiritual maturity is. It's not religious zeal. It's not overabundance of activity. It's Christ like character. At the time, I didn't realize it, but it was the transformation of character where real maturity is marked. Because here's the thing are you ready? When we become followers of Jesus Christ at first, guess what? God gets all the big sins out of the way. I was thinking about this last night. Can we all just thank God for a minute that when we first get saved, he just miraculously takes the big things and just gets gets, gets them out of the way. You know what I'm talking about? He does that. I don't know why. I do know why he does it. I don't know how he does it, but he just comes into our life and he gets the big sins out of the way, right? The level of conviction when you first get born again is alarming, you know what I'm talking about? You can go from being not a Christian and sleeping with your girlfriend every night. The Holy Spirit enters your life and you can't ever have joyful sex anymore. You have an overwhelming conviction. It is great. You know you're grieving the heart of God like never before. It, is, it hurts you inside. Why? Because the big behavioral sins get worked out quickly as a new believer. God does away with them. But then, come on everybody say then. Then the Holy Spirit. Woo, 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 woo. Then he starts working deep within your soul. He starts going down in your heart and he starts getting to your motives and he starts getting to your thoughts and he starts getting to your thought life and he starts getting to your desires and he starts getting to your ambitions and when he changes those things, that's where effortlessly we start becoming like Christ. When he changes that level of my life, That's when effortlessly I do what Jesus would do in my place. Jesus, what do I still lack? You like the inward transformation that flows outward. Meaning, watch this, your life will be full of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's the inward glory, Christian, that will slowly come out. God puts inward glory in the depth of your spirit and it starts working its way out. Can I just say real quick the difference between spiritual maturity and what we call religious moralism? The difference between spiritual maturity and religious moralism is that religious moralism teaches you that the more you do Christian stuff, hopefully it will change your heart. The gospel said God changes your heart and that results in what you do. God goes into the inside and changes the the soul, the the, the heart of a man, the the, the spirit of a man, right? He goes in and he gets into the heart of a person and then it changes our behavior. And that results in a changed life. So it's an inward glory that's slow and it's slowly released out of our lives. Wasn't this the scandal of Jesus? Everybody thought Jesus was going to come and set up an earthly what? Kingdom. And he said, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God's where? Within you. He set up his kingdom in us. That's what makes the scandal of Jesus so scandalous. He didn't set up his kingdom on earth. He set up his kingdom in your ribcage. He set up his kingdom here. It's not just for us and with us, but in us. Christ in you. The hope of glory. We have been what? So cleansed of our sin. We have been so forgiven of our sin. We have been so united with our Jesus. And we are now so holy. God can actually make us the very dwelling place of God. Now that poses a question. How is that happening? Craig, I got you, man. But how do I get on that? Well, our core value at dwelling place is what we call maturity journey. Maturity journey that this is going to be a process for you to be transformed into the image of Jesus, to think like Jesus, act like Jesus, respond like Jesus, and love like Jesus, means you're going to have to be on a journey. So what Paul does in Colossians is he gives two ways to get in on this. One is simple and one is not. You want the simple one first? I'm gonna give you the simple one first. Here's the two ways you get in on this maturity. Number one, the first thing is that the central practice that will produce spiritual maturity in your life is engagement with Scripture the first thing. In in Colossians 28, he said, it's our goal to present the word of God in all of its fullness. Part of the challenge of American Christianity is we're like, yeah, 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 the Bible, yeah, the Bible, I get it. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't. Because if we got it, we'd be different. No, I get it. I get it. The Bible, I need to be in the Bible. no, 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 you don't get it. Because if you did get it, your life would be different. It's all about the attitude with which you approach the text. It's all about the attitude with which you approach the Bible. Listen, it is very hard, church. It is very difficult for us as pastors when you tell people that the Bible is a portal into God's presence and not just a book with information to read. Because people say, I know that. But very few people actually have the practice of using the Bible like that. I know on one hand... The amount of people that use the Bible as a portal into his presence. Most people use the Bible as a book of information, as a book to gain more knowledge. It is a portal into the presence of God. There was a study done just recently in U.S., the largest study ever done on spiritual maturity in U.S. history. They surveyed 15,000 churches. Some really large, some really small, a lot in the medium range. It was 400,000 individuals. 400,000 people had to map their spiritual maturity over five years, over stage by stage, every course of time. At the end of every year or stage, they were asked to rank one through five every stage. This is what they were asked to rank. What was the most helpful thing to produce spiritual maturity in your life? And in every stage of their journey, the number one practice was reading and studying the word of God. Reading and studying God's holy word. I want to say this clearly today. You will never be spiritually mature and have a low view of the Bible. You will never be spiritually mature and neglect the scriptures daily. You will never be, people right now are longing for truth like I've never seen in my lifetime. They want to be told the truth so badly. They're so tired of cultural narratives. They're so tired of culture wars. Let me tell you what the word of God says. The truth is you will never be spiritually mature if you neglect the holy word. The truth of the matter is you will never have an impenetrable defense to the deception until you make a daily habit of engaging God in his word. Now, that being said, you can have a high view of scripture and still be spiritually immature. That has to do with your attitude. But you'll never be spiritually mature if you don't value God's word. Now, I want to get, if I can, a little prophetic edge for a moment. This is where I feel a lot of people in our church are currently. And I'm here to encourage you. I want to encourage you so much today about your journey. This is where also in the Bible we find out about who Jesus is. It's in the Bible we find out about what God values. This is in the Bible where you get the seed itself and not the seed substitute. The Bible is where you hear the voice and not the echo. So it is our vision for each of you to be self-feeders. It is our vision for you to be a leader in your own self. Our leadership can and will consistently lead. I want you today to love God's word. I want you today to have such a working relationship with the word of God, whatever it means. If you need to get on a Bible reading plan, whatever it is, whatever the responsibility or goal to engage God's word, And our leadership can and will tell you when we get together, when we gather together on our Sunday meetings, I'm always asking them, hey, what do you get from the word of God? Give me a little rhema. Let's start with a devotion of the word of God. Why? It's a value of mine. We have to consistently be able to hear the voice of God. Now, I know some of you, you have a frustrated relationship with the Bible, or maybe you have a complicated relationship with the Bible. I'm just telling you, just keep wrestling with the book. Don't tap out. Go back in for another round and get beat up again. It's okay. When you get beat up, you'll be changed. Okay, don't tap out. Don't go out there. Get some water. Let them smack you around a little bit in the corner and get back in there. Wrestle around some more. I get pinned all the time, folks. But I just keep going back in. I just keep wrestling. Come on, church. Are you with me this morning? Just keep wrestling the word of God. Just keep engaging the word of God. We're trying to change the wrong thing in American culture. We're trying to change the Bible. The Bible's meant to change us. It's meant to transform us, to change our heart and desires. So our vision is the fullness of the Word of God, preaching and admonishing and teaching. And then the second thing he says is this. You must understand that maturity is a process. It takes time. Now, there's an interesting verse in Luke chapter 2, verse 42, and I want to mess with your Christology for a minute. This might press your understanding of the incarnation, but listen to it. It's an interesting verse, Luke. We appreciate it. Chapter 2, verse 42. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Here is Jesus having to grow in favor with his Father. Told you it'd press your understanding of the incarnation a little bit. He's having to grow in favor with his Father. Here he is, Jesus, having to grow in wisdom. Here is the Son of God, God incarnate, having to grow in favor with God and with man. The whole point is that Jesus had to go through a process to get to maturity. And we will have to go through that process as well. He is the forerunner. There's a book written by M. Scott Peck on the the books called The Road Less Traveled. It's a great book of yesteryear. And he highlights so many good things. And he says spiritual maturity follows physical maturity. There's another wonderful book. It's blue. It's published by Zulon Press. It's called Divine Design for Discipleship. Its author happens to be your pastor. His name is Chad Craig. I don't know if you've ever met him. He published a book called Divine Design for Discipleship. And in that, he talks about the four distinct stages of spiritual growth. Now, the problem is this. We are all stuck as believers. We all think that we are adults when only few of us are. So we're unaware that we're not fathers and mothers in the faith. We're unaware of our stage in growth. Here's the four stages that are presented. Infant, or we call babe, child, an adolescent, which would be a young man or young woman, or an adult, or a mother or father in the faith. Now, each of these stages, church, require distinct things from us, which means in order to grow up, we have to do certain things in that stage to move on to the next stage. Pastor Chad, if you ever reprint the book, I want to give an addendum. I've taught foundation phase... With, with what we call the D3 network for, I don't know, 15 years. And if you're in my foundation phase, you'll realize I give this addendum. Okay, So I'm going to submit to my brother this great addendum. This is my interpretation of the stages. If someone is a new believer, next slide, what are they? They are consumers. Babes consume. If you're a child, what, what contribution does a newborn make to the family? Nothing but total inconvenience. You clean the rear. You wipe and clean their mouth and rear at the same time sometimes. They're selfish. Not with the same wipe, though. You clean them, you feed them. Watch. And no one is saying, You're a consumer, you little consumer. No, this is what you expect, right? They need milk. Now, listen, when it's feeding time for babies, babies don't want to play. We kept Emmett. Emmett's like four times the size of what he's supposed to be right now. He is like the biggest kid on the planet. So he loves milk, right? Emmett, Simons. And then now we keep the two little Copiano twins. My wife does, I should say. I don't keep them. She's she's the wonder mom. And when it's time for them to eat, they're not ready to play. No, don't worry about eating. Yes, play time. No. It is milk or go home. And we don't get on to them for that. So when new believers come into the church, it's okay. It's milk or go home. Nah, you don't have to serve on a team. No big deal. I'm not even going to tell you when you have to serve on a team. I'm not going to judge you. That's the natural stage. Oh, I will spray you with milk. You want to stay all day, I'll I'll keep on throwing milk at you. That's what you are. You're a consumer. You're an infant. So when you're a new believer, we don't judge them or talk them out of it. Life will do that. Y'all, sin will do that. We ain't got to tell them. Sin will eat them up. Life will eat them up. It's okay. Let them drink. All right? Then you move on to a child. You know what child, children need psychologically to thrive? They must not have ambiguity. They must have certainty. My three kids right now, they need clear boundaries. They need to know this or that. Although I want to teach them nuance, it's not time to teach them nuance. They need to know this or that. They need to know right or wrong. They need psychologically safety. And spiritual children are the same. For them, isn't it crazy when you talk to a spiritual child? For them, it's like, oh, there's the kingdom and there's worldliness. And you have a conversation like, that's worldliness. And you're like, well, you know. Nah, nah, it's black and white. You know, you ever talk to a child, spiritual child? Nah. And this is me. There is no ambiguity or, or nuance at all. Nothing's complex. Nope, black, white. Kingdom, not kingdom, Right? This, and, and, and listen, it's, it's, listen, listen. this concept of contextualization, gone from a child. Concept of missiology, make unchristian friends so you can win them to Jesus. No, you can't, I can't be with Christian friends. They'll, bad company, corrupts good. See, they're not there yet. They're, they're children. They're children. There's nothing wrong with this, by the way. To bring nuance to a child, bring it to a child and you will harm the child. They're not ready for it, which is why church... Why protecting the innocence of children must be a top priority for Christians in our day. We must protect the innocence of children. There's something so beautiful about the world when it's that simple. You talk to a kid, God is there when you pray. You pray, he answers. That's it. Very clear and simple. No nuance. Then you move into adolescence. Oh, mamas. Teenage mamas and daddies. (laughs) That's why you're here this morning. Try to encourage you. Because real adolescence is about challenging everything. Is this a Moscow value or a true kingdom value? Am I going to own this or not own this? And listen, parents, you got to let them do it. If you helicopter parent them, the moment they have a, f- a, f- a moment at 18 to get out, they will have a phase where they'll run wild. Yep. You have to give them space to challenge To ask questions, to own it themselves, to engage with their mind, engage with their heart. And then when you move on to an adult, what adults do? Most of your life is giving yourself away as a contribution to others. Don't we know? If an adult is selfish and doesn't give their life away, they do tremendous damage. What was your dad like? Oh man, he was so selfish. All he cared about was job and money. Tremendous damage. Greatness in the Bible was people who give themselves away for others. So spiritual maturity is not what you get out of it. It's what you create to give to others. If you're spiritually mature, you go to bed on Saturday night not thinking about what I'm going to get tomorrow. You go to bed thinking about what can I give tomorrow. What can I give? How will I leverage my life, my time, for the sake of other people? So the challenge is this. A lot of churches are really good at one stage. Follow with me for a moment. A lot of churches are really good at one stage. Thus, a lot of people jump churches in America. Hear me. There are a lot of churches in this city. If you are a new believer, you will be drunk on milk. And and I mean that. It's good for you. I mean that. I say that sincerely. I know several churches I can name off right now that if you are a babe, you will be swimming in milk. And it will be good for you. It will be amazing for you. But then people say things like, well, I wasn't being fed there anymore, which means what? They're moving on to another stage. And then you get people where they are getting fed and they need to go to a church with a little bit of like cynical edge or with a little bit of prophetic edge and challenge everything. Right. They want a little bit. Don't don't worry, mom and dad, what they're doing. They're just becoming an adolescent They're just trying to challenge things. Now, if you get stuck in in stage three, it's the worst stage to get stuck in, by the way. I'd rather you get stuck in one or two or four, right? Obviously four. One or two is better than three. When you get stuck in stage three, it is the most terrible place to be a Christian. When you're challenging everything and you don't own anything. Now, there's nothing wrong with going through adolescent Christianity, but hopefully you end up as an adult and you show up at church because you want to give your life away for the sake of others, But I just want to say, just have an awareness of where you are. None of them are wrong stages. They're natural and normal, but you don't want to get stuck on a stage, which leads us, as I conclude today, to the reality of what we call stage theory. Stage theory. I had to read a book when I was in seminary, a great book called The Critical Journey. I didn't really like it at the time, but it's a profound book. It tells us that all of us have to, in order to go to a new stage in our growth, we often don't have the tools of understanding to realize that this is actually happening in our life. Now, this stage awareness happens continually in your life. Let's go back just for a minute to my Pentecostal years, my spirit-filled years. When I was a new believer, I was like, oh my gosh. Life-changing awareness of God. The kingdom of God exists. I can pray. I can fill my truck cab when I'm driving down the road. We can pray for one another. We can stay at church. I had this overwhelming, life-changing awareness of God, right? A new believer. This moves me to discipleship where I what? Where I begin to learn in this new reality. I begin to learn who God is and what God is life. This results in what? The active life where I begin to serve other people, where I'm doing all of this discipleship stuff based on the awareness of God that I have in stage one. But at some point, it stopped working. It stopped working. Many of you are there right now. My early morning prayer stopped working. I think of people in this church that have led prayer, and it was so good for a season, then it stopped working. My Bible reading time stopped working. Now, if you're not in a community of faith that understands these these stages, this is what they say to you try and re get your original encounter and do a lot more spiritual things. Work harder. Go back, get your original encounter, do more stuff for God. And then, when normally you do it the second time, the second time around, you get really, really tired and you get really, really exhausted and you get really, really discouraged. It's one thing to run into a wall once and say, ow, it's another thing the second time because you see the wall coming. And many people get really disillusioned. But what is really happening at the wall is you are hitting the point of maturity. You're hitting that challenging paw, place. That wall makes you go to the place where you have to journey inward. And what God does at that wall is in that moment, you are, start going inward and dealing with your motives of that stage. The Holy Spirit, we're dealing with the motives of that moment. And he does what a loving father would do. He makes everything in your life here about love. Right. He, he, he He makes prayer stop working. Bible reading stops working because you're, needing to go deeper into the soul he needs to get your heart to be about love he needs to get your Christians my God I'm preaching this morning to be about service that is perfected in love and so when people come to me in that moment and they think you know what oh I'm stuck no 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 you're just getting rid of your self-centeredness you're just getting to a place where he's getting rid of your ambition no you had you had all kinds of amazing desires to serve the kingdom of God but you deal with wrong motives you did with wrong ambition and he makes a lot lot of people right here. So we have a revelation about his presence. We get discipleship about his presence, but now we have a heart of love and that's what God wants. And then out of that transformation, what does he do? He leads us outward again. Now I'm hungry again. And what happens? God gives me a new encounter, a new revelation. This is why when you start following Jesus, you don't have new encounters and new revelations every, every month of your life, because you got to go back through the process. And then when he goes deeper, what do you do? You come out of it with a heart greater of love and you have a new encounter and God encounters you again and he gives you a new divine revelation of his presence again then you have to learn how to operate out of that divine encounter and the discipleship of that divine encounter and then what happens you hit a wall again it stopped working and you got to go deeper and deeper and deeper and if you aren't careful you'll go from church to church trying to recapture that initial experience and you will unintentionally turn into a consumer when you're meant to be a disciple and people come to me and say craig i've lost the presence of god i've lost the presence of god i had it happen five times in the last two weeks no, he's actually taking you into something deeper. And I'll I know it sounds weird, but I'll tell you slow down and do less for God because it's so important for us to be aware of where we're at. You see one people one people you see people one week they're a Pentecostal, the next week they're a First Baptist, the next week they're an Anglican, the next week they're a Presbyterian, the next week they're a Catholic, and all they're trying to do is get to another encounter, but you can't get to the encounter until you go through the wall. You can't, you can't. So you're going to have to allow the work to go deep. It won't work trying to recapture. So don't panic and grasp, trust and be patient. So come on team. The vision is maturity. So why isn't everyone mature then? Well, Craig, if we have charts and growth phases in the Bible, it's easy. Now let me tell you why people aren't mature. Because there's a cost to maturity. is not there? Isn't there? Physical growth is almost always automatic, but spiritual growth is almost always a choice. Which means if you want maturity, you have to pay the price. Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. Suffering was the price of maturity for Paul. Here's the point, church. Spiritual maturity has a cost, and if you want to go after it, you will experience suffering from Satan, and you will experience suffering from the and you have to be willing to deal with that level of resistance. You have to be willing. Ronald Rollhauser, great author I read, he says, Real transformation of soul will not happen at Disneyland, but at Calvary. Hear me. I know we all love joyous moments in the kingdom. But real transformation doesn't happen in moments of joy and wonder. Those are meant to be enjoyed. Real transformation happens in moments of death in crucifixion. When we move towards Jesus and self-denial, we pay the cost. Church, look at me. There will be a cost to being mature in an immature world. There will be resistance from a juvenile society. There will be a moment when you move towards more nuanced ways of thinking and living. And you must always remember, they always persecute the saints during their lifetime. It's only after those people die do they say, "Weren't those people amazing?" People who are living faithfully for Jesus now don't ever get the recognition that they're living faithfully for Jesus. Saints get persecuted because they make the general status quo uncomfortable because it tells them there's something more to life. You're not going to be popular if you're going to be a disciple. You'll only be praised at your funeral. You're only going to be praised after you die because our entire culture exists to try and alleviate anything that brings you discomfort. And yet, that's what makes suffering so hard I'm not saying trying to make your life hard that's a form of immaturity I'm saying if you follow Jesus hardship will come to you but we have to see it as a gift and God will give us supernatural energy right in the midst of the struggle he will give us to this end Paul said I strenuously contend how's it going leading your connect group well I'm strenuously contending leading my connect group right now that's okay this is a divine partnership for labor in the kingdom of God. I'll tell you this and I'll close. My experience now having pastored almost two decades is this. God releases a supernatural energy when you contend for other people's maturity. I'm going to say it again. God will release a supernatural energy when you contend for other people's maturity. And when you're doing it for yourself, you'll get tired. But when you get to the end of yourself and you say, I'm so tired, Pastor Craig, I'm so tired. Lord, I don't have any more margin. I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed but I will step up to the plate and I'll give myself for God. God does something in you so unexplainable in that moment and it accesses his spiritual power. Hear me church, so often some of the busiest people on the planet are not the most burnout people. It's not busy people that are burnout people. Why, they have supernatural power within them. And sometimes the cautious people, the real hesitant people saying no to responsibility are the most exhausted people because all they have is time management. And when you will contend for other people's maturity, God will give you supernatural access and he'll give you supernatural power. Do you want to be spiritually mature? You have to commit to it. You have to commit to it. What do you want to do with your future? Well, Craig, I want to be more mature. I want to be more mature. When people ask you, what are your plans for the future? I think it's perfectly acceptable to say, you know what, I don't know where I will live or what job I'll have but I want to be more like Christ. That's my future. That's my future. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.